Um, today, we are continuing our series um, that you can change, right? We're, we're talking about how the, the fundamental truths of God, these, these four critical truths that we're looking at that are deceptive, deceptively simple, right? God is good, God is great, God is gracious, and God is glorious, um, actually orient us to ourselves and to the world in such a way that we can, in fact, pursue life. Um, and this morning, we're going to be looking at the critical truth that God is good, right? God is good, and, and the application is going to be so that we can get clean. Um, Growing, changing, transforming, developing, becoming who we want to be and who we've been created to be. It is a hard, messy, difficult process. Um, And along the way, all of us at one point or another or at many points along the way are going to get stuck. Uh, We're going to find ourselves in spots where growth doesn't just seem hard. It may, in fact, seem impossible. Um, maybe that we have a behavior, a habit, and it just won't go away. We just can't seem to shake it, whether it's a besetting sin or just a, a nagging habit. You've tried and failed to overcome it, but the more you try, the more you fail. It can be almost anything, right? Porn is one of the biggest issues in our culture today. Um, the internet uh, has made that, which was always a, a besetting sin for many people, um, it has become a ubiquitous cultural problem today with its crazy uh, accessibility, right? So there's that, there's that, but it can be anything, right? It can be shopping. Uh, it can be browsing social media. It can be binging Netflix. It can be day trading. It it can be um, drinking too much or exercising and dieting too much. It can be anything where um, some of these are are like clear perversions of good things. And when we we indulge in them, we hide them. We know they're shameful. And so we, we hide them. Others of them are good things that have become ultimate things, right? Not just things we enjoy, but things we need in order to function in life. Listen, you know you've crossed the line into addiction. You know you've crossed the line into compulsive behavior when when it does become automatic and compulsive in its nature, right? When when you just end up in the behavior and you're not even sure what steps you took to get there, right? They're so automatic that, that when you switch into default mode, you just start moving toward it. You start gravitating into it. You, you, the, you don't think about or plan um, how you're going to engage or activate or, or you, just, you just end up there. It's a compulsive thing, right? And if you don't get to it, if you don't get to do it, if you don't get to engage in it, if you don't, you end up struggling with your emotional balance. When, when you're not able to go in and, and to, to this behavior, to indulge this, this, this habit, there's a form of withdrawal, right? You can get moody and depressed and and frustrated and, and easily provoked. Um, listen, I've had believers so covered in shame because they had besetting sins or other habits in their lives that they just couldn't seem to overcome that they questioned whether or not they were even Christians, right? They read the Bible and the, and the descriptions of freedom, the descriptions of, of overcoming sin just didn't seem to match them. They're like, man, I, I, I want to believe, but I'm not sure I do, right? I, I'm 
I think I, I want to be a Christian, but I'm just not sure I actually have faith because that doesn't seem to describe me. I, I've had other believers so frustrated with the struggle that they decided this must be how God wants them to stay. Well, God's not taking it away. He doesn't want me to hate myself, so I guess what I need to do is, is indulge myself, right? So, so either beat myself up for my sin or affirm myself in my sin. Listen, neither one of these is the pathway to freedom. Neither one of these is, in fact, how we change, how we grow in grace, how we become uh, what God has created us to be. And in this series, we're, again, looking at these four critical truths about God that can help us change and grow, right? God is great. God is good. God is gracious. God is glorious. And today, we are looking at God is good so we can get clean. So let's take a look at our text. We're going to go to John chapter 2 this morning, verses 15 through 17. John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. If you have a Bible, grab one off the chair around you, uh, or open it up. If you don't have one, grab one off the chair around you, or open your apps. Um, And we're going over in our Bibles to page 1021, 1021, John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so some of you may be like, hey, Steve, yeah, thanks. That's just not the greatest passage. <laughs> that's, that's not where we want to go, right? That, that didn't help, right? That doesn't sound very encouraging, right? When you read verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. I'm trying. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Okay, yeah, now I feel rejected, right? This, John can be like that. All right, the Apostle John, especially in the epistles, writes in such a way that, that everything is black and white. There are clear lines of, of demarcation, right? You're either in or you're out. You're either moving this direction or that. And that is one of the rhetorical devices that, that he uses, right? If you love the world, the love of the Father isn't in you. Does that mean that if I struggle with my love for God and my addictions that I'm rejected by God? Does that mean that if I struggle with, with these behaviors, with these things, that, that I'm... God doesn't love me that I am outside of the circle. No, no, that's not what it means at all. In fact, that's not what John intends, right? Um, John speaks in these absolutes, right? On the one hand, he'll say anybody who sins is not of the Father. And on the other hand, he says anyone who sins has an advocate with the Father, right? He is is a writer who creates these tensions because um, that's part of his style. What he wants to make clear to us is that as murky as life can be, there really are only two ultimate goals that we can orient ourselves to. There are only two things that we can anchor our hopes in, our hearts in for the fullness of life, either the love of the world and all that is in it or the love of God and what he gives us. We're either going to look to this world to satisfy our ultimate desires for security approval, significance, rest, or we're going to look to the God who created this world to meet those deep desires. Those are two completely different orientations. Those are two completely different directions 
for the map of our lives. See, John's not saying that we won't struggle. What he's saying is that in our struggles, this reality remains true. As murky and as difficult as it is in in practical life, we are either going to follow our disordered desires to try to get the fullness of life from this world, or push into the love of God to reawaken our deeper godly desires for what is real and true, the desires that come from having a renewed relationship with Christ, from having believed in Christ, and having been redeemed by his death and his resurrection, right? Take a look at verses 16 and 17 again. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Listen, desires aren't bad, okay? Desires aren't bad. And strong desires aren't bad, right? Strong desires are are not only normal and necessary, but often very, very good, right? If you work all day and you come home ravenously hungry, and man, you, you just go to town on dinner, man, praise God, all glory to God, that is holy and good, right? I hope you enjoyed that meal. It is good to have that strong desire. It is good to satisfy that strong desire. Being in love with your spouse and thinking about your spouse all day long and coming together and feasting on love together, that is good and holy and right. Uh, and, and, and that is the, both the desire, the strong desire, and the fulfillment of that desire is created by God, and it is good. Strong desires aren't bad. Strong desires aren't your enemy. Disordered desires are. See, desires for, uh, desires point us to an end, to a goal, to a telos, right? The desires will point us to the direction we will pursue. Disordered desires point us in the wrong direction. Disordered desires are desires for good things that are pointed at wrong things, right? I have a deep desire for security, but my desire is pointed at the accumulation of money. I have a deep desire uh, to be loved, but, but that desire is pointed at I don't know, body renovation and sculpting. I, I have a deep desire, right? The, the desire is good. The deepest desire is, in fact, a fundamental human need given to us by God to be satisfied in relationship with God. A disordered desire hijacks that need, though, and points it to things that aren't God. And that's when that desire is called lust or greed. Those are two words that simply mean an oversized desire for the wrong thing. The fundamental desire under that desire is a good desire, but it's a disordered desire. It it points us to the wrong thing, right? Good desires that point us to things that can't ultimately fulfill them, right? I want to be loved, but my disordered desires drive me to short-term relationships and misuse of sex, right? I want to be important, but my disordered desires drive me to seek out fame instead of significance, I want to be secure, but my disordered desires drive me to be a control freak, right? Trying to control not only all the loose ends of my life, but all the loose people in my life, right? Um, Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of possessions or the boastful pride of life. 
Um, these, this, these are manifestations of our rebellion against God, hijacking the desires that God gave us for God and pointing us to things that aren't God, the things that we see, the things that we experience, the things that we, that we own uh, or possess. We look to these things to do for us what only God can do and be for us what only God can be. We try to find the fullness of life where God doesn't give it because the gifts of God can't be God. And so we follow our disordered desires to feast on what John says is passing away, right? It has no permanence because the world and its desires are are passing away. These are short-term pleasures with diminishing returns. Anybody, everybody who has struggled with habitual or addictive behavior knows that this is the way it works. It is a path of um, short-term pleasure and diminishing returns to the point where there's almost no pleasure, there's just the memory of pleasure. But there's still the pursuit of that pleasure because your disordered desire is craving whatever it is that's on the other side. So you're still driven by the hunger, even though the hunger is being satisfied less and less and less. This is not the way to the fullness and flourishing of life. We won't get there by pursuing the deceptive uh, desires. Um, We must pursue the good desires. So let's talk a little bit about what this means when we say God is good. All right, what do we mean by that? When we say God is good so we can be clean, right? What this means is that God is the essence of what we find good. He is the original good. He is the true and original stuff of goodness. <laughs> He's the reason there is good in the world, right? Um, philosophers uh, pose a, a compelling question. Why does beauty exist in this world? There's absolutely, I mean, if you're looking at it from a naturalistic, materialistic, evolutionary perspective, there's absolutely no reason for beauty to exist. It plays no evolutionary advantage. There, there are absolutely no uh, ultimate purposes that increase survivability. Why does beauty exist? Why is there anything beautiful in the world at all, right? Uh, there is no functional value to it, and yet we are surrounded by transcendent beauty. We are surrounded by transcendent beauty. It is so complex, it is so prevalent that we discover beauty upon beauty upon beauty. When you discover the flower inside the flower, when you discover the, the, the fluorescent fish that leaves, lives in the depths of the sea that never even sees the sun, when, 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 you, when, you, when you rediscover the beauty of a sunset, when, when, you know what I'm saying, like there are just beauty upon beauty upon beauty in this world and we are drawn to it. And our desires are provoked by it. A couple years ago, um, as I was thinking about this, this is one of the memorable moments in my life of of transcendent beauty, right? Lauren and I were down in the Keys, uh, a place that we absolutely love to go. And and it was just one of those nights, man. It was all, everything, right? We had fried grouper sandwiches, beautiful food. Mm, So good, right? We're sitting in a restaurant that's literally on top of the water. We have manatees and tarpons swimming around us, right? Tarpon are like, if you can think of a minnow, but prehistoric and like four to six feet long, right? Those things swimming all around you, the, the manatee, 
Um, we walk out to the end of the dock and it's sunset. And it's one of those sunsets that literally lasts 45 minutes. It just, the color just changes and grows and it moves from red to pink to orange back to red and, and, and it's phenomenal. And as we were sitting there, we had seen a shark in the water and, and we had been talking about it, how cool it was. We wanted to see it again and we started praying that the Lord would, would let us see the shark again. And it literally, as we were praying, swam underneath the dock and right underneath our feet, like, like two feet beneath our feet. That was one of those nights. Like one of those nights of just goodness. You know what I'm saying? Like goodness. One of those nights where um, I had this, this deeply satisfying joy. But what's interesting is that when you have those moments of deeply satisfying joy, those, those moments of transcendent beauty, I don't know if you've noticed this. You probably have. I don't know if you've named it. it took me a long time to put words to it. In fact, somebody had to help me. Oh, C.S. Lewis. But that joy awakens that satisfaction awakens a deeper dissatisfaction. That joy awakens a sense of painful longing, right? It awakens this hunger for something that is rooted in the experience, but it's beyond the experience. Like this experience is great, but it awakens an appetite that can't be satisfied in that experience. I've experienced this on the side of a mountain. It's one of the reasons I love climbing 14ers, right? When I get out there and and, and I've just exerted my body, and, and I, it just feels good to be alive. I feel the breath in my lungs, and I, and I am climbing the side of a mountain, and I'm surrounded by all this incredible beauty. I've experienced the same thing there. I've, I've experienced it, you know, 25 years ago when my kids would snuggle on my lap, and they would just sit still. And I get to re-experience it now as a grandparent when, when my grandchildren slow down just enough for me to catch a quick hug, um, right? I, it is, I've experienced it in great fiction, and even great nonfiction, the kind of writing that, that ignites my imagination and, and, and sets me longing. I have, I've experienced it in incredible poetry that anchors itself, a word or a phrase anchors itself in my imagination. In those moments, there's a joy, right? There's a joy in the moment, but it's an uncomfortable joy because it's good, but it awakens your desire for a greater goodness. C.S. Lewis um, described it with a German word, Zenzucht. Um, Zenzucht is a, a, a German word that means a deep feeling of joy conjoined with a painful longing for its ideal fulfillment. A deep feeling of joy that is conjoined with a painful longing for its ideal fulfillment. It's often used in... Um, uh, for those who don't believe that, that it can be fulfilled in terms of desperation. It's actually a horrible experience for those who believe there is no ultimate fulfillment. Um, now, here's the thing. Any encounter with beauty or goodness can awaken this transcendent experience. The problem is that we often mistake the good of that experience for the ultimate good that it awakens our yearning for. We, we mistake the good in this world with the ideal good that we crave and and, and, and we start setting our hopes on those things instead of allowing it to awaken a deeper desire for the thing behind the things, the good behind the good. And so we encounter the things in this world that are good and it awakens this deeper desire ultimately for God's goodness, right? In The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis described it this way. He said, these things, and by these things he means these transcendent moments of beauty. These things, the beauty the memory of our own past, 
are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. Now listen to this part of the quote. I'm going to put it on on the screen behind me. For they are not the thing itself, right? That great meal, that transcendent beauty, that moment on the side of the mountain, that, 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 that quiet moment where the world disappears and you're simply cuddling your child, right? They are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited. When we say God is good, what we mean is that he is the original good, the true and abiding good, the reality that stands behind the shadow of every other good. Or as C.S. Lewis puts it, he's the flower we haven't found. He's the tune we haven't heard. His presence is the country we haven't visited. God is good. This is one of the central themes, of course, throughout Scripture. Right? The psalmist sings in Psalm 107, verse 1, I'll give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The psalmist sings in, in Psalm 34, verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. God is good. He is the ultimate good that our souls desire. He is the ultimate good behind every other good. And, and ultimately, he is what our desires are, are designed to drive us toward, right? Those desires were placed in us that it might drive us toward God, that we might be satisfied in God, right? That, that we might respond in love to God and feast on his goodness, his beauty, his glory, his, his graciousness, Right? So God is good, but how does this help us with our habitual struggles with sin? How does this help us with overcoming uh, habitual bad habits? All right, so our disordered desires ensnare us um, because we've shifted our craving from what is truly good and satisfying in God to what is in this world. Right? We, we look to what God has created instead of the God who created it. And, uh, and, and in that process, we submit ourselves to be under control of those disordered desires, of those lusts, right? The only way to get truly free is not simply to resist the disordered desires, but to reorient those desires to what is good. See, if all you try to do is suppress those desires or defeat those desires or overcome those desires, the best you'll do is, is push them down right? You, you will suppress them, but you will not defeat them. And those desires, while you may, through the effort of self-control and willpower and, and, and um, re reorganizing your schedule, you might be able to, to suppress them, but you will never be able to transform them. The only way to actually become free from disordered desires is to have your desires actually attuned to what they truly desire. In other words, when our desires are set on the goodness of God, it reduces the appeal of the deceptive goods of this world. We start to see God's good gift and we stop trying to substitute 
those gifts for, for God. We, we, we see the, the perversion of God good, God's good gifts and, and, and they are not appealing to us because, because our desires are set on the good of God. If we are tasting and craving the goodness of God, the cravings of this world will diminish. Right? It's like the guy who was addicted to Chick-fil-A sa- uh, chicken sandwiches. And then he had a Popeye's spicy, crispy chicken sandwich. Once you've had the real thing, you don't go back. I know, fighting words. Um, I was feeling a little spicy when I wrote this. I was like, I'm going to throw it out there. Just see. All right. The point is, it's not enough to simply know that God is good. You must taste that God is good. You following me? It's not enough to simply affirm the truth. You have to taste the experience, right? Because it is the taste of the experience that reignites the desires, that aligns us with what is real. So let me talk to you about two critical ways that you can awaken your appetite for God's good, right? This, is, this, comp, this topic is, is way more big, way, way more complex than, than we're going to be able to cover this morning. But I, I want to hit on two, two simple things that I believe can help you Reawaken the right desires and align them uh, to, to, um, to feast on God's goodness so that those desires will um, grow and the other desires will shrink. The first, you need to be intentional with your liturgies. You need to be intentional with your liturgies. And you're like, Steve, I have no idea what that sentence even means. Uh, what are liturgies? Right, that's such a churchy word. Liturgies, very simply, are things that you do habitually that shape how you think and how you feel. Everybody has liturgies, right? Because we are spiritual beings. We are worshiping beings. You can never turn that off, right? You're not a secular and sacred being, secular during the week and sacred on Sunday, right? You don't show up at church to worship on Sunday and then go be a productive person for the rest of your, of your you are a continually worshiping being. You will continually pour yourself out to something Asking that something to meet your deepest needs. You will continually pour out your affections and your desires. You will continually be a praising being, a worshiping being, a a spiritual being. You don't turn that off. And so that means all of your habits have a liturgical effect. In other words, a spiritually shaping effect on your heart and on your soul. Liturgies are the things that you do habitually that shape you that influence you, that awaken certain desires to pursue, to pursue certain things. So um, if you turn on talk radio every day on the way to work, that's a liturgy. It's not just a habit, it's a liturgy. Why? Because you're not just listening to talk radio, you're being influenced by talk radio. If, you, if you're one of those people that, that just turn on um, news, network news over the course of the day, and, and that, that what is called outrage porn, right? All it is is people telling you why you should be mad and who you should be mad at. If you're consuming that all day long, that liturgy is shaping you. It is influencing you. It is, it is awakening certain things in you and dulling other things in you, right? Daily news, social media, talk, radio, your habits are liturgy. They aren't things that you just do. They are things that shape you. Your desires, your fears, your hopes. Um, listen, uh, my first point is this. You need to be intentional with your liturgies. 
You need to realize that you are a spiritual being and that as you are feeding yourself these different influences, those influences are shaping you. Be intentional with what shapes your heart. Be intentional with what shapes your desires. What you do, what you listen to, what you talk about, what you spend time meditating on, it shapes your desires and aligns them to some perceived good. So spending time with political talk radio, news networks, social media, Reddit, 4chan, 8chan, nobody should be on 8chan. Um, are, these are all things that, that will attune your affections toward some perceived good. It will shape your fears. It will shape your hopes. It will define um, your distractions and it'll awaken your strong desires. Listen, spending time in the Word Spending time in prayer for yourself, for the people you love, for the people that have hurt you, for the people that have blessed you, for your leaders. Um, Meditating on God's promises and his character. Memorizing the word of God. Singing songs of worship. Having conversations with people who encourage your faith. These are also liturgies. And they are the kind of liturgies that awaken a very different set of desires, that awaken a very different set of hopes and expectations and, 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 and an outlook on the world, right? These habitual influences have a powerful effect on how you perceive your world, what you desire, and where you set your hope, right? So you need to be intentional. It doesn't mean that you can't engage in, in news radio. It doesn't mean you can't engage with, but do it intentionally and be very, very aware of how it's influencing you and shaping you, right? So that you can do it with moderation and you can do it with, in a way that is not undermining or controlling your desires, right? You want to expose yourself on a daily basis, on a habitual daily basis. You want to expose your soul to the things that re- will reawaken your joy, in God and deepen your joy in him your daily liturgies awaken specific desires and point you to some good either in this world or in God set your liturgies so that you walk away more encouraged in God in his redemptive purposes in this world in your experience of his low love and in your hope for the kingdom that his that he won in his resurrection and is, is here and it is coming right All right, so be intentional with your liturgy. Second, be intentional with your community. Be intentional with your community. Um, Often when we want to break habits, bad habits, um, often when we're dealing with areas of of personal our first thought is about accountability, right? We want to get somebody who will check on us. Somebody that, you know, can get our covenant eyes reports or somebody that uh, will, will, ask us the probing questions we don't want to be asked, right? Did you do this? That thing you said you didn't want to do. Have you engaged in this? That thing you didn't want to engage in. I am convinced that way more than accountability, we need community. Accountability, man, I've just seen it over and over and over again. Accountability is a tool that we use uh, in a a self-salvation, self-improvement project. Accountability is our way of saying, I'm going to have this external thing 
that will either provoke shame or pride, shame in my failure or pride in my success, and I'll either get to boast that I didn't or I'll, I'll feel horrible that I did, and that horrible feeling will help me change, right? We even try to use self-abuse as a way of fixing ourselves. Um, accountability is not bad when it's done properly when it's in the context of community because way more than someone checking on you you need someone loving you you need someone who sees you values you loves you celebrates you sees the best in you and helps call that best out that's what you need you don't need somebody who's going to awaken your shame or inflame your pride somebody who's just going to to help check off the box actually um, loves you and calls out the best in you. Because at the end of the day, God is a loving God, and he created us to be loving beings. And fundamentally, when we say God is good, at the heart of that is his love. What makes him good and beautiful? It's his love. That, that no matter what beautiful thing he makes, it's a personal expression of his love toward us. No matter what beautiful thing he does, it is a, it is a profound expression of, of how much he loves us. Every good thing, every beautiful thing that he's placed in the creation is a reminder to us that we have a God who loves us, that he surrounded us with these delightful things that we might delight. And that ultimately, our delight in what he made might renew and awaken and ground us that, that helps us remind us that we're loved by God and, and, and by people, right? We need people around us who love us more than check on us in, in a way to just poke into specific areas of accountability. Um, listen, as we surround ourselves with community, we will be shaped by that community. Community is another form of liturgy in the sense that the people we're around are going to shape who we become, right? This is just a, a fundamental truth. When I was in education, this was something we talked to the kids about all the time. Be careful how you pick your friends, right? Pick out, be careful what influences you surround yourself by because they will influence you right? If you're surrounded by people, you're going to, you're going to adopt their values. You're, you're going to, to adopt their habits. You're going to adopt their hopes. You're, you're going to adopt their language. You're, you're going to be shaped by the people that are around you. Listen, we need more than just friends. We need friends who will help us grow in our love for God and our experience of God's love for us. You get that, that, that? We need friends who are going to help us grow in, in, in our experience of God's love for us and our responding love for God. We are shaped by the people we spend time with. So we need good friends. Now, ironically, um, my church experience, the, the subtle message that I received, and sometimes not so subtle, sometimes very direct and overt, was, was that what this meant was you needed to stop hanging out with unbelievers and you needed to hang out with believers. Right? You need, you need to have Christian community. You need to surround yourself with, with other people who believe. That's the solution. Get away from all those unbelievers out there, those people who are going to influence you in bad ways, and surround yourself with, with believers, with Christians. Listen, that's not how you get holy. That's how you get weird. Okay, when, when, when Paul warned us in 1 Corinthians 15.33, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. In the context of that chapter, he's not talking about people out there in the world, he's talking about people in here in the church. 
1 Corinthians 15 is, a, is one of the most doctrinal, uh, it is by far the most thorough explanation of the truths of the resurrection. In the middle of that, what he says is, man, you need to be careful who you're hanging out with. Because I'm talking to you about the gospel. I'm talking about, about the implications of the gospel, the, the credible, credible promises of the gospel. And some of you are missing it because you're hanging out with Christians who have lost it. You're surrounding yourselves with Christians who are doing the right things and saying the right things, but they are no longer responding to the love of God in the right ways. They have become self-content and complacent. They have become, they have wandered from the love of God, even if they haven't wandered from, from correct doctrine of God or correct practice uh, of church stuff, right? Listen, he's not talking about bad people in the world. He's talking about bad Christians in the church. Y'all, we need to be careful with believers who are not living out the truths of the gospel. If we surround ourselves with people who are um, content with religious behavior and moral improvement, we're going to become content with religious behavior and moral improvement. If we surround ourselves with people who, who see holiness as simply doing the right things and avoiding the wrong things, we're going to subtly adopt those values. And I've seen this play out time and time again, right? Do not be deceived, Paul says. You will become like your community. If the people you are around are, are spiritually complacent, apathetic toward the love of God. Now, they would never admit that. But there's no, they've just grown cold and, and automatic. If, if you're hanging out with people that are gripped by fear, they just have a ton of anxiety about this world and about politics and, and, a, and about tribalism in this world. If, 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 if they're defensive and, and, and they know who the bad guys are and those bad guys out there are the ones that are ruining everything, hanging out with people that are entitled. Man, they just feel like they deserve to be served. They deserve like, they feel like, like the church has served them, that it should be a specific kind of experience as opposed to a place to go and serve. It's a place to go and be served. Um, when you're hanging out with people that, that are, are just nursing their resentments and they're just processing their resentments toward people, toward institutions, toward tribes, toward when you hang out with these people, listen, do not be deceived spreads the problem is when everyone around you thinks that's normal pretty soon it's the people that are actually responding to the love of God that seem weird look for people who will influence you to respond to the love of God because they're responding to the love of God and seek to be the kind of person that helps others respond to the love of God. Never stop being amazed by grace and look for people who haven't stopped. Never stop being in wonder, right? I mean, some of us act like it's not a miracle that any of us are saved. Never stop being amazed at that miracle. Never stop being humbled by that grace. Never stop being undone by that love. Look for people that are still amazed and undone, that are full of joy and gratitude, not resentment, fear, and entitlement. 
Look for people who are going to encourage your faith and increase your joy in Christ. Not in a specific set of behaviors or political ideologies. Move toward people who are going to ignite your love for God and away from those who ignite your fear and your pride. Do not be deceived. Good com- bad company corrupts good morals. Move toward people who ignite your love for God. And for goodness sake, stay connected to unbelievers so you don't get weird. Like for real. The worst thing that can ever happen to us is that we just get sucked into this Christian bubble and everything we do is an encounter with other people who are followers of Christ. Man, we need to be in the world but not of the world, but we need to stay in the world connected with people in the world. We need, we need to, to continue realizing that, that this incredible message of a risen Savior, man, it's kind of crazy. We believe Jesus rose from the dead, y'all. That, that's weird to the world. It is good news to us. And if we ever stop realizing how weird it is to the world, we're going to become weird, right? Because it is crazy. But it is so good because it's true. All right, so be intentional with your community. Final point. As you're thinking about being intentional, be specific, right? And, and you do that with start doing, stop doing, keep doing. Or stop doing, start doing, keep doing. All right, listen, so we've talked about this. Resolutions are bad because resolutions are just ideal wishes. They don't get you anywhere, right? Goals are better because they're concrete, But goals by themselves aren't very good because they don't tell you how to get there. Habits are where it's at, right? Habits are good because habits change. Habits actually help you achieve goals. So setting worthy goals is great as long as you've anchored those goals with a set of concrete habits that actually help you to get there. If you want to change the outcome, you need to change the behaviors. So we're talking about being intentional with your liturgies, being intentional with your community. Man, prayerfully make a list. Write it down of things you need to stop doing, things you need to start doing, and things you need to keep doing. Right? What are the things that you're doing that are feeding the wrong appetites? You need to stop doing those things. Right? Um, one of my New Year's habit choices uh, Lauren has, over the years, I've had a problem with my phone. Um, I get, my brain starts buzzing. I don't know how to describe it. I get overwhelmed. I get flooded, emotionally flooded. I get, I get, um, and I need a release. And what I've found is that when I'm in those moments, and especially when I'm surrounded by people, I just need to go to a quiet place. And what I'll do is I'll pull out my phone and I just disappear. And I just scroll, right? Some people call that doom scrolling. You're just... You're not necessarily looking for anything, and you're maybe not even looking at anything. You're just going into this place where, where you know. And, um, and Lauren told me, she's like, Steve, I'm, I'm literally going to take a hammer to your phone. I hate it. I was like, maybe I should pay attention to that. Maybe there's something there. And so, very specifically, what do I want to do? Well, the, op- the behavior was automatic. Like, often I wouldn't even think about it. I don't know if you've ever done that you would go to do something and then like a half hour later like I don't even remember why I picked up my phone and what have I been doing right so I just deleted social media from my phone I didn't make a resolution that I was never going to engage social media or you know I'm going to do it with moderation but on my phone I just I'm going to stop doing that I'm going to took it off 
right? If there's an app that you use that's a temptation for you, delete it. If there's a place that you go that ignites certain disordered desires, stop going there, right? I remember early in my Christian life, an older guy advised me, he's like, look, if you're if you're on a bus and, and that bus passes a billboard and that billboard has an image and that image ignites your imagination for sin, that's not sin the first time you see it. It is the second time though. Like if you go out of your, start going out of your way to make sure you pass that billboard, if you're making sure that you encounter that thing, that, you know, so stop doing that. Like, like write it out, figure out what are the things I need to stop doing. Okay, what are the things that you need to uh, start doing, right? What things are you not doing that will feed the right appetites, right? For me, um, in the morning when I get up, my, I, one, I decided I'd get up quite a bit earlier than, than I was already getting up um, because I wanted to have an hour in the morning. Uh, my, my house is pretty chaotic these days. It's very noisy, uh, and I do well with solitude and, and quiet, and so I get up early. I make my coffee, I make my breakfast, and while I'm doing that, I listen to my ESV app. So it just, I've been working, I started in Genesis 1, and I'm working my way through the Bible again this year, but I'm doing it in that way. I'm, I'm not saying I'm going to make it through the Bible in a year, right? Kind of an artificial goal. Um, but I am going to work my way from Genesis through the book of Revelation, and I'm just going to get up in the morning, and as long as I listen, I listen, right? And um, uh, that's something I've started doing a new liturgy for me. And what's funny is, is two weeks in, three weeks in, when I miss it, I miss it. You know what I'm saying? Like that new habit is something that I actually look forward to. It's something that, that is feeding something in me, right? Um, what are the things you need to start doing that you're not currently doing? What are, what are your habits for engaging the word daily? What are your habits for engaging prayer daily? What are your habits for... for um, um, uh, engaging and serving others, right? What, what are the things that you need to do that you're not currently doing? And then make a goal, right? A, an attainable goal, right? Not, not a vague wish, well, I, I hope to be more kind. No, like, like set an attainable goal. I will every single day choose to say one kind thing to one of my coworkers. Every day I'll be intentional about it. And I'll pray about it. I'll ask God, what is the kind thing you want me to say today? How do you want me to be a blessing to somebody in this office today that I'm not currently being a blessing, right? Intentional. It changes your mindset. It changes the way you interact with people. It changes the way you enter an environment, right? What are the things that you're not doing that you need to start doing? And then what are the things that you've started doing that you need to keep doing? All right, what are those things that are, in fact, good things? You just need to be intentional to keep doing them, right? For me, um, uh, the, during the pandemic, uh, I got weird and started running, right? I told you guys that. And um, I hit my, my, my two, uh, I, I ran the one marathon and injured my foot in, in, before the other and um, still kind of nursing that. And, but I, you know, here's the thing is I've just determined, I've, I've shifted, right? Preparing for a marathon is actually a part-time job. Um, I've shifted that energy now, putting all that energy into other areas very intentionally. But I'm also choosing to intentionally stay physically active, right? I will run. I will continue to stay physically active. It's good for me. It's healthy for me. What are the things you need to keep doing, even though they may be hard for you to keep doing? And then write them down, right? So just simple. Stop doing, start doing, keep doing, right? How are, how are you going to grow in these things? Listen, I just wanted to close with John in, in, in 1 John chapter 3. 
first three verses, he says this. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are, right? He's provoking us to, to think about how much God loves us so that we might have a responding love to him. The reason why the world doesn't know us is because it didn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not even yet appeared. But we will know him when he appears and we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Now verse three, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself for he is pure. He's not saying everyone who has this hope has enough willpower to purify himself. He's saying everybody who responds to the love of God in such a way that it reawakens the right appetites will become pure like he is pure because we will become what we're focused on. We will become what we love. So let's fall back in love with the goodness of God. Let's fill our vision with, with his love and, and his, his, his steadfast um, commitment to our good and with the incredible gifts that he surrounds us with so that as we fall back in love with him, that love will reorient our desires toward him. All right, let me close this in a word of prayer. We're going to share communion, and um, we will respond in prayer. Um, all right, let me pray. Father, we thank you. Man, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you are a God of love. Uh, in fact, a God of steadfast love, of hesed love, the kind of love that is, is rooted in, in just your sovereign commitment to us. It's not based on how lovable we are. It's not based on how well we perform. It's not based on, on whether or not we deserve that love. It, it is a love um, that isn't set on us because of our beauty. It is a love that is set on us to make us beautiful. And we thank you that you have loved us and that the glory of that love is rooted in grace, that we haven't deserved it. We haven't earned it. There's nothing in us that merits it but you have loved us all the same. You loved us so much that you sent Christ to die for us, to be our substitute in, in judgment, that we might be his partner in blessing, that he might die and rise again, that we might also rise. Lord, we pray for the power of that rising. We pray for the revival of our souls, the power of resurrection in our lives, that we might be able to break free from the sins that entangle us, from the habits that derail us, from the things that take us away from Jesus. Help us, Lord, to be awakened in our love and awakened in our joy and awakened in our hope that, Lord, everything in us might be aligned with who you are. And, Lord, that painful longing might also be a joyful one. That we might that we might find everything in us aching, not for this world, but for the God of this world, and not for this age, but for the age to come. Meet us where we are, Lord, and take us where we can't go on our own. And we pray this in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all of God's people said, amen.